Most of you know that Christine and I have three sons. Uh, they're all grown now. Our youngest just actually had his high school grad on Tuesday. But uh, we, we moved to Edmonton, Christine and I, with a 15-month-old Calvin uh, nearly 22 years ago. And we've actually been in the same house the whole time, fairly small house. And so our boys, throughout all their growing up years, shared one bedroom. And, and that was good in many ways. It's all they knew. And I think growing up, they would have missed each other if they had the privacy of their own room. But uh, all of them sharing a room in a small little house did present some challenges along the way uh, in various circumstances. One of those circumstances was when one of them would be sick. Uh, you couldn't very well have a, a puking son in the same room with the other two trying to sleep. And so uh, I don't know how it happened. Some of these things just kind of evolve and unfold. But, but we developed what somehow came to be known as the sick bed. Uh, the sick bed was in the kitchen on the floor. If someone was sick, they would, we would get them out of their room so the other two hopefully could sleep. We had a little mattress from an old toddler bed that would hit the floor, and we'd put some blankets on there, and that's where our sick child would be. And then next to them, uh, we'd throw down some other blankets, and I would lay there next to them on the kitchen floor for the night, generally with a bucket between us, and uh, generally a fairly non-restful night. And I'd, I'd have my hand on them while they were groaning, or I'd be right there when they ralphed all over the place. I, was, I, I slept there next to them on the floor. I, I, was, I was nearby, and you'd have to ask them, maybe I don't know what their memories are, but my hope as their father was always that they would, that they would find comfort in, in, uh, in a certain measure of peace, knowing that they weren't alone, that, that I was near. This morning, we turn back to Philippians. We're going to look at verses 4 to 7, uh, which are in, in a section of Philippians in the NIV. The, the title is Final Exhortations. And in verses 4 to 7, what, a text that, that asserts for us the, the nearness of the Lord, the nearness of Jesus. And that lies at the very center of this text. It is Jesus' nearness that... that will move us to obey, that allows us to obey what we are called to in this text. Because He is near, we can find comfort. Because He is near, we can experience peace. Because He is near, we can know joy. We can be shaped as men and women who would reflect His character in this, His world. Last week, if you were with us, you'll remember that Paul applied really practically uh, to the Philippian believers the things that he has been talking about through the letter. There are two primary issues that Paul is dealing with in the letter to the Philippians. Uh, one is that externally there is, there is opposition. They are suffering because of their faith in Jesus. And internally there is some relational tension. Not all is well. And so Paul has been calling them to oneness, to unity as a church. And he's calling, called them to steadfastness for the sake of the gospel, that they would stand firm in Jesus for the gospel in Philippi. Those themes have run throughout this letter. Uh, in the passage last week, as we hit this final stretch of the letter, Paul applied those things very specifically, first to the church. He said, stand firm in the Lord. He, he called them as a church. These things that I've been talking about are not just theoretical things to fill pages or, or sermons. This is, you as a church need to stand firm in the Lord. And, and then 
And, and that involves forgetting what is behind and straining towards the goal of knowing Christ, to which we're called heavenward. And then secondly, we are introduced to two women in the church, Judea and Syntyche. Syntyche. And, and these women are evidently having some conflict, some disagreement. And so very practically, very specifically, uh, Paul says to them, he, he urges them that they would be of one mind. He calls those two women in that very specific situation to unity for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel, because their disunity threatens both the health of the church and the effectiveness, the fruitfulness of the mission of the church. I contended last Sunday that all that Paul has been saying through the text this far got really practical, that this was where the rubber hits the road. This call to unity, this call to steadfastness, lived out by the people of God, lived out by us. And then at this point, Paul is going to share some further exhortations as he moves towards the close of the letter. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read verses 4 to 7 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In our time together this morning, I want to ask four questions with you. We'll spend most of our time answering the first. But four questions. First, what does Paul command? Uh, second, where does this occur? Third, how can we obey? And fourth, what does this mean for us? Uh, what, what does Paul command? Where does this occur? How can we obey? And what does this mean for us? So first, what does Paul command? Uh, technically, there are five imperatives within uh, these four verses, but really there are just three commands. Let me explain how that is the case. Uh, first, one of the imperatives, rejoice, is repeated. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, I will say it again, rejoice. So it's, it's echoing the same command that we are to rejoice. Second, the last two imperatives are really getting at the same thing from, from two different sides. One is stated negatively while one is stated positively. Uh, uh, neg negatively, do not be anxious about anything. Positively, rather present your request to God. Pray. Don't be anxious. Pray. Make your request known to God. Between the first, rejoice, and, and the third, don't be anxious but pray, we find the second imperative of our text, the second of three commands, verse 5, where we read, let your gentleness be evident to all, or, or let it be known, exhibit gentleness. These are the things that Paul commands. These verbs are all imperatives. They are commanding verbs, not mere suggestions. Paul is calling us, he's calling the church to obedience in these things, that we are to be practicing joy, that we are to be exhibiting gentleness, that we are to be living non-anxious lives through prayer. These are commands. Let's look at each one in turn. Imperative number, number one, rejoice. Uh, this, of course, is not the first time that we encounter this theme of joy in the letter. In fact, joy is a major element throughout the letter to the Philippians. Back in Philippians 1, verse 4, as Paul begins, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
A bit later in that opening chapter, he says that even if some people are preaching the gospel with wrong motives, trying to stir up trouble for Paul, who cares? He says the important thing is that in every way Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. In chapter 2, he called the Philippians to make his joy complete by being like-minded. In the passage we looked at last week, Paul actually called the Philippians, he called them my joy and crown. But Paul doesn't only speak of his own joy, he also speaks of joy for the Philippians. In chapter 1, Paul expresses his expectation. Remember, he's in prison. He doesn't know whether he'll be released or executed. And then he expresses that he anticipates, he thinks that that God's not done with him, that he will be released. And he says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, that is, I won't be killed, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. After calling these believers to have the, the same mindset as Christ and to shine like stars in the sky, Paul writes this, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul later tells the, the, the Philippians about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, of course, came from Philippi. Epaphroditus brought the financial gift to Paul in Rome uh, where he's in prison to help support him. We're going to hear Paul's thanksgiving for that gift shortly here in chapter 4. But Epaphroditus got sick, you might recall. He almost died, and the Philippians were anxious. They were worried for him. And so Paul tells them that he's going to send him back. In fact, Epaphroditus brings this letter back to the Philippians. And he says, then, so then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. The theme, the motif of joy just is saturating this letter. Paul's joy, his, his call for the Philippians' joy. Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee writes this, Joy, unmitigated, untrammeled joy is, or at least should be, the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. Joy, unmitigated, untrammeled joy is, or at least should be, the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. The wearing of black and the long face, which so often came to typify some later expressions of Christian piety, are totally foreign to Paul, the Pauline version. Paul, the theologian of grace, is equally the theologian of joy. Joy is a mark of faith. Joy is a mark of faith. It is not dependent upon one's circumstances. Remember, Paul is writing this letter, this letter where joy just saturates everything, this theme. Paul writes this from prison. Hardly ideal circumstances. And he is writing to believers who are facing opposition because of their faith, because of their loyalty, because of their commitment to Christ. They live in a very pro-Rome colony where the people regularly acclaim to Caesar lordship, and, and they don't because they know that only Jesus is Lord. And because of that, they are facing opposition. They are suffering for their faith. And yet, from prison to people who are suffering for their faith, Paul commands joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice. Perhaps the reason that Paul repeats himself, repeats this imperative, is that he anticipates objections. But how, Paul? How, how can we rejoice in the midst of opposition? How can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? 
but they are called to rejoice in the Lord. Our our joy is predicated on Jesus, on on what Jesus has done, on who Jesus is, and on who we are in Jesus. The, The Bible calls us to repentance and faith. Repentance is turning from our sin, acknowledging that we have rebelled against God, that that we cannot fix what is broken in our lives, that we cannot make up, we cannot pay the penalty. And, And then trusting Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, putting our faith in what Christ did on the cross, that on the cross, Christ suffered and died in my place and in your place, bearing the penalty for our sin, So that through faith in Him, we are made alive, we are forgiven, we are washed, we are cleansed, we are declared holy and righteous and clothed with Christ's perfection. That's the gospel. If you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, I I just I I want you to understand that Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up and making yourself acceptable to God. It is about falling before Him in repentance and faith, saying, Jesus, you are my only hope. And when we do that, we are promised life. He will fill us with His Spirit, He will wash us and cleanse us, He will clothe us with His perfect righteousness. And so our rejoicing is in the Lord. Our rejoicing is in what God has accomplished through His Son, Jesus. In, in the fact that through, through Jesus we are accepted, we are adopted, we are loved. That everything has been changed radically. Remember Paul spoke a bit earlier in our letter of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. How everything else that he used to To value, he now counts as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of being found in Jesus. I hope that's not for me. I'm not done yet. (laughs) Paul's eyes are fixed on the goal, the heavenly prize of knowing Christ in, in all fullness. He knows Christ now, but one day he will stand before Christ. And last week I said he he called the Philippians my joy and my crown because he's anticipating standing there with them. With these brothers and sisters who are in Jesus. And there is great joy. It It is what he pursues with everything he has. Paul has asserted that their citizenship, his And the citizenship of the Philippians is in heaven. They live now in this Roman colony in the city of Philippi. They live now as a colony of heaven. And so because of the glory of what Christ has accomplished, and because of the certainty of what is to come, they can rejoice. Their joy... Is not based on their circumstances. It's predicated on their being found in Jesus. That's imperative number one. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Second imperative. Let your gentleness be evident to all. This virtue, this characteristic, this, this is to be evident. It, it is to be visible. It is to be observable to to all. 
and that, of course, includes others in the church, but in the believing community, but it certainly goes beyond that. It's not limited to the church only. It's to, to all people. When the people of Philippi, the pagans who are lost around these believers, when they see the church, when they see these men and women who put their faith in Jesus, they are to see their gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Certainly it's applicable in the church where there is tension, where there is relational disharmony, but it is not limited to the church. This is to be what people see when they look. We ask the question, what, what exactly is this gentleness that Paul calls us to? The word that's translated here carries the notion of, of gracious forbearance. For, forbearance, this idea of, of, of putting up with. It, it, it speaks of patient self-control, of, of restraint, of, of, of tolerance, it, this, the gentleness that is called for here is exhibited in Jesus himself, as described in 1 Peter 2. Listen to this. This is what's said about Christ. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is the gentleness. That is the, the quality that is to be evident in our lives, that we are commanded to exhibit to all. This selfless restraint, this forbearance, this grace towards others around us. And think about this. Think about the context into which Paul speaks this. Paul, Paul is, is writing to the Philippians who are under pressure. They, they are experiencing opposition because of their faith in Jesus. They are suffering because of their faith in Jesus. And Paul says to them in that context, let your gentleness, your gracious forbearance, be evident to all. In that context, these believers are called, believers we are called, to rejoice in Christ, and to exhibit this gentle, gracious forbearance. Moises Silva writes this, Paul expects believers to be guided by a frame of mind that does not put priority on personal rights. Let your gentleness be evident to all. He goes on, he says, believers whose primary concern is whether or not they are being dealt with fairly will fail to exercise a fundamental element of Christian behavior. This is a command that others are to look at us as the church, that others are to look at you and I as believers, as disciples of Jesus, and what is to be exhibited is this gentleness, this gracious forbearance, putting up with, not fighting for my rights, but gently forbearing, recognizing that those who are around us, those who are causing our suffering, those who we might even deem our enemies, are those that we are called to pray for, those we're called to love, because they are in the grip of the enemy who wants to destroy them. And so, like Jesus, we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. 
And we don't insult. We don't retaliate. We don't threaten. We exhibit gentleness. The third imperative comes in two parts. Negatively, what we are not to do, and positively, what we are to do. Negatively, we are to live without anxiety. Do not worry. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Those, those are, that's a hard word to hear, isn't it? Gordon Fee writes, apprehension and fear mark the life of the unbelieving, untrusting. The, un the unbelieving, the untrusting, for whom the present is all there is and for whom the present is so uncertain. Disciples of Jesus are to look different. Disciples of Jesus are to trust God, to entrust our lives, our future to God. And we're called not only to not be anxious, but to trust God by going to God in prayer. We, we trust God through prayer. Prayer is an expression of trust. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God, of our creatureliness, that, that God is God and we're not, that we're not in control. Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount, can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, present your request to God. Don't be anxious, pray. Don't be anxious, but present your requests to God. God knows what we need. God knows what we face. And so we are invited, we are commanded to pour out our hearts to Him in everything, in, in, in all, in, in every detail, in all the circumstances of life. And we're called to do so with thanksgiving, always remembering, thanking God for for His many gifts, for His love, for all that He has done, for all that He has promised, for all that is ours in Him. And Paul says that the result of that is peace. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, a peace that does not make sense from an earthly perspective, a peace that others will think is completely bizarre. A peace which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Fee writes, this peace that is ours comes not because God answers according to our wishes, but because His peace totally transcends our merely human way of perceiving the world. Peace comes because prayer is an expression of trust, and God's people do not need to have it all figured out in order to trust Him. Do not be anxious. Pray. The second question I wanted us to ask is where does this occur? Let me explain what I mean by that question. I've already touched on this a little bit. These responses to God's grace, this, this joy, this rejoicing in Christ, this gentleness that we are called to exhibit, this peace that will be ours as we choose not to be anxious, but to trust God through prayer. Uh, where do these occur? In what context? And this is important for us to think about uh, because these characteristics, these virtues are to happen, I would say, in, in a couple contexts. One, in, in our own hearts and minds. This peace that we receive 
is something internal. We, this is a gift of God, but it is not only an internal thing for you and I. We uh, tend to, as North Americans today, we tend to read Scripture and think about God's Word in very individualistic ways. So this piece, yes, it is internal, but it is also external. Paul is writing again to a church that has division, relational disharmony, and he is saying that, that when we rejoice in the Lord, we, we're to exhibit our gentleness to all in the context of the church and in the city where we live. And we're to choose to not be anxious, but to pray, to bring all our requests to God. Just trust Him. And then there will be peace in our hearts. And as we obey God in these other areas, there will be peace in the community as we have the same mindset as Christ. As we choose to exhibit gentleness even to those who oppose us, who hurt us, who make us suffer. So, so here's what we need to see. That these things occur internally. There is, there is joy. There is peace. There is a, a gentle spirit. But these are to manifest themselves in the believing community that we together in our relationships, uh, we celebrate, we, we rejoice together. It's what we do when we worship. That's not the only thing we do, but we rejoice in God, in what He has done, in who we are in Him. We, we exercise, we practice being gentle with one another, gracious forbearance. And we choose to not be anxious. We rather present our request to God. We, we pray. We trust God. And, and God promises peace. And so those, those things characterize us as a believing community. And they characterize us as we go out into the world. That as you go to work, as you students go to school, that there ought to be a, a joy and, and, a, and a gentleness and, and a, a peace that is rooted in trusting God that that people look at and go, that's just weird. That doesn't make sense. With all the chaos in our world, how, how can you respond like that? How can you exhibit joy and gentleness and peace in the midst of the mess that we live in in this world? These things happen, yes, internally, but also externally in the church and in the world as we go out. Third, how can we obey? How can we obey? Remember, these are commands. Rejoice. Exhibit gentleness. Don't be anxious, but pray. Perhaps you're thinking, like, how does that happen? I know as a father, there were times where one or another of my boys would be grumpy. And I don't know if you ever tried this as a parent, but sometimes I said, hey, smile. Be happy. Never worked. Every once in a while, I could... I could get them you know, to crack a smile, thinking of one of them in particular, but it wouldn't last. How, how do you command joy? How, how, do, how, do, you, how do you just do that? How, how do you, don't be anxious. Have you ever encountered someone who's really anxious and just said, hey, relax, don't worry? Like, how does that work? How, how are we actually supposed to do this? I mean, these are, these are commands. These aren't suggestions. This isn't, hey, this is ideally where you'd like to... This is, we're called to rejoice. We're called to exhibit gentleness. We're called to have this, this, receive this peace by not being anxious and praying. So how do we do this? The key lies in the indicative of our text. There are these five imperatives, these, these commands. But there's an indicative that, that is... Uh, 
a, a verb that speaks of what is. It speaks of the fact, what is true. And here it is. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Jesus is near. Paul is writing from prison to Christians in Philippi who are suffering. And he says to them, in the middle of this, in the middle of all the imperatives, he says, Jesus is near. The Lord is near. And Jesus is near in, in two ways, two, two things we see. Jesus is, is near through his spirit. We, we know Jesus said to his disciples in John's gospel, I will not leave you as orphans. He promises the Holy Spirit, a comforter, an advocate to be with them, that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is always present with us, no matter where you are, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter what difficulty, challenge, pain you face, Jesus is near. That is, that is part of the, the bedrock theology of, of Christianity, that we are not alone, that Christ indwells us by His Spirit. Jesus is near. But, but Paul has also been speaking about Jesus, that He is coming again, that, that we live now as people of the future, that we live now as citizens, as a colony of heaven, that the eschaton, Christ's return, is it could happen any moment. Just God will pull back the curtains and suddenly we will see things as they really are. That Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. That, that all the, the, the kings and power brokers of this world are playing games. And one day every knee will bow before the one who truly is above all. Jesus is near. In fact, Paul said to them, said to us, But remember, our, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. We eagerly await. If we are living in a world that is a mess, a world that is broken because of sin, we, we can get frustrated because our hopes and dreams in this temporal world are getting messed with. Or we can lift our eyes as we have been called to throughout this letter to fix our eyes on the goal, the prize of knowing Christ fully. We can run, forgetting what is behind, pursuing, straining forward for that day when we will know Christ in all fullness. We can recognize that we live even now as citizens of heaven, as a colony, as a church, a colony of heaven in the midst of Mill Woods. And that we eagerly wait a Savior because the hope of the world is, is Jesus. We, we cannot fix. We, we strive for. We try to live as godly influences in this world. We pray your kingdom come uh, on earth as it is in heaven. But we long for the day when Christ will come because when Christ comes, he will finally set all things right. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Because the Lord is near, we can have joy. Because the Lord is near, we can live with gentleness in the midst of whatever is going on around us. Because the Lord is near, we don't need to be anxious. We can bring our anxiety to God and, in prayer and receive from Him the gift of peace that surpasses all understanding. There is much in this world about which we can mourn and should mourn. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who 
see the darkness of their own hearts, who see the, the wickedness of their own sin and mourn. Blessed are those who look around and see the destruction that Satan is wreaking in the world. Blessed are those who look around and see the, the wickedness of the world. Blessed are those who not see those things and get angry. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, who see and weep. There is much in this world over which we as believers should weep. But a response of anger, response of, of anger is just, it's not what we're called to. We're called to joy. We're called to gentleness. We're called to trust God and receive His peace. And so let's be people who mourn. Let's be people who look around and see the mess of the world and the, the wickedness and the sin and the lostness of men and women all around us. And let's mourn. Let's not be angry. Let's not respond as so many in our world do. Sorry, I've already been answering the last question. What, what does this mean for us? Ed Stetzer wrote a book published about four years ago called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And he points out that there are too many examples of Christians who are responding in the ways of the world rather than in the ways that Christ calls us to respond. What would it look like if in the face of whatever challenges we face? What would it look like if in the face of whatever opposition we encounter, what, what if in the face of suffering, suffering because we are faithful to Jesus, what if in the face of all that we responded with joy, not in those things, but joy in Jesus? And, and what if we responded with gentleness, patient, gracious forbearance? What if we, we presented all our requests to God Rather than letting that anxiety eat us up, we just bring it to God and, and receive from Him this gift of peace that comes only from Him. What if we lived as men and women shaped by Christ in these ways? The key to all of this is the nearness of Jesus. I began this morning by sharing about the sick bed in the Wiens home. And how I would lay on the floor next to my kids, my hand on them, getting splattered with whatever was happening. Jesus is near. Jesus is near. The Lord is near. And because He is near, brothers and sisters, because He is near, we can be men and women who rejoice in Jesus. We can be men and women who exhibit gentleness, this gracious forbearance. We can be men and women who, who, who recognize when we're anxious and we run to Jesus with that. We present our request to him and we receive his peace. We can be men and women who look different. Not different because of who we are or what we've done, but different because of who Jesus is shaping us to be. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is near. Let us live as those who remember that, as those who live in light of that reality, no matter what we encounter. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your nearness. And we ask, Jesus, that you would shape us. That we would reflect these qualities, these characteristics that you call us to, that you command of us, knowing that we don't produce these by ourselves, but you produce these in us by your Spirit. Lord Jesus, work in us, we pray, for your glory and our joy. In your name we pray, amen.